Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Joyce. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. My name is also Eric, Pastor Eric. Um, This year, one of our goals as a church is to go deeper in prayer together. Prayer is hard. Prayer is hard for all of us. I think I can safely say uh, that it, it never becomes easy. There's growth. Uh, there's, there's further insight. There's moments where prayer can become very meaningful, but it never becomes easy. Much of prayer, and myself included in this, much of our experience with prayer tends to be rather superficial and shallow. We, we can do prayers like, Lord, give me a good day. Help other people have a good day. And we can kind of remain on the surface with those superficial prayers. That's why we're studying the book of Psalms for the season of Lent. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. They were Jesus' prayer book, the book he quoted more than any other book. And we're calling this series An Anatomy of the Soul because these Psalms move us beneath the surface. They take us beyond a superficial spirituality. As you read the Psalms, you realize what you're, what you're reading. As you try to pray the Psalms, you realize what you're praying to all the feelings, all the seasons of the human soul, all the experiences a human being can possibly go through in this life. And in the Psalms, we see how all of those things become prayer. And I know um, to those who, who pray using the Psalms, and it's been this way for me, and Pastor uh, E.C. Uh, said this as he was leading us in the prayer of Psalm 11. What I find myself saying repeatedly as I'm reading the Psalms, as I'm trying to grow and learn how to pray the Psalms, what I find myself saying is, you can say that? I'm supposed to pray that? I'm allowed to feel that? And bring that feeling into God in His presence in prayer out loud. And the Psalms say yes to all of that. That this this type of of deep prayer into places, into our lives that we didn't even know were there, that this is the way that we experience depth in our relationship with God. It's what a real relationship with God looks like. We've been saying this the past few weeks, just as Human anatomy can be broken down into different systems, right? The digestive system, circulatory system, 
and that sort of thing. We can also think of our spiritual anatomy in different systems. I don't know if I'm going to keep this going throughout the entire series, but I'm going to keep it going this morning. We looked at the confession system, Psalm 32. What do we do with our guilt? What do we do when we feel like we've done wrong? That's our confession system. Last week, we looked at Psalm 77. We talked about the stress system. When we hit trouble in our life, we have stress, bad stress, good stress. What do we do with it? We all have to do something with it. Today, we will look at what I'll call our vitality system. What do I mean? I would describe it as as a spectrum. And all of us are somewhere on the spectrum this morning. On one side, we have weariness, tiredness. And on the other side, we have life, energy, buoyance, and joy. And we all tend to fluctuate somewhere on that system, either feeling like we have vitality or feeling like we're barely holding on and we are weary. So last week, we talked about assessing our own stress. This morning, could I ask you to rate your own vitality. How weary and tired are you this morning? As we move forward here, for some of you, I will be able to rate your vitality because you will be praying with your eyes closed as I continue on in this sermon. Thank you for those prayers. (laughs) I appreciate them. Here's something I've done over the years with with staff and volunteers I've worked with and overseen. Uh, Use the picture of a streetlight. Okay, I meant to put a picture up on the, on the screen, but you know what a streetlight looks like, right? There's three colors, red, uh, yellow, and green. So when it comes to your energy, your excitement level for your life, for your work, for your relationships, what are you? Are you green? Let's go. Let's keep going. Let's keep rolling. I have strength. I have vitality. Are you yellow? Slowing down. Let's not take anything else on in life, starting to get a little weary, or are you at a red light where you feel very weary and you just need to stop? Red lights? How many of you are at a red light? Yellow? Green? If you're at a green, don't be ashamed to admit it. We need you greens because I think there's probably... A lot of reds out there this morning. Psalm 13 that Joyce read for us is a psalm, it's a prayer of lament. It's a prayer that came out of an intense time of weariness for David. King David, the greatest king in Israel and the greatest poet of Israel, he wrote this prayer when he hit a total red light in his life. All red. But look at the psalm again. Did you hear it when Joyce read this? Did you notice this? Verses 1 through 4, look at these verses again. The weariness is intense, overwhelming. We'll talk about it. But look at verses 5 and 6 then. The joy, the peace, the trust, the renewed energy is incredible. There's movement in this psalm from red to green. How did this happen? How did this happen? How did someone so weary so tired, with no energy left for life, get to a place of joy and renewal and hope. Before we see how this happened in Psalm 13, I want to share with you something important about biblical laments. We've been talking about laments. We've been practicing lament. We did that 
in our liturgy this morning. And this applies to the book of Psalms as a whole. Laments in the Bible. Places where people bring their honest sorrow, their suffering and tears to God. There's something true about all laments in the Bible. I only know of two exceptions in the Psalms. And that is this. They all have movement. They move from lament to praise. Walter Brueggemann, who's a scholar of the Psalms, said, plea to praise. Plea to praise. That's the quintessence of biblical prayer. That's how he puts it. So each individual lament has a movement from lament to praise. And the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, the entire book, the collection of these prayers also has that same movement. The laments, these pleas for God's help, they're clustered toward the beginning of the book, and the book moves more and more to a crescendo of praise and joy at the end of the book of Psalms. The movement is from suffering to glory, from weariness to joy. I want to trace that movement with you here in Psalm 13. How does this happen? We're going to look first at the cry of the weary. Then we're going to talk about the case of the weary. And finally, we'll look at how joy comes to the weary. So first, the cry of the weary. Psalm 13 begins with the longest series of questions in any of the Psalms. And they all begin the same way. How long? This is one of 11 psalms that articulates this question in prayer before God. How long? And verse 1 helps us see what kind of question this is. What kind of question is how long? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? What kind of question is that? Well, it's a, it's a question a weary person asks. It's a question about waiting. It's a question about being very weary of waiting. And I would say it's less of a question and more of a cry. Let me illustrate that. We're getting ready for a road trip. We're leaving right after church. So this is our spring break. We're taking a trip up to Utah as a family. It's going to be a long drive. And I am preparing for it mentally, probably about nine hours. So as I'm mentally and spiritually preparing for the question that is inevitably going to come our way as we're driving up, the question will be, how long are we there yet? How long? When a child asks how long, or more accurately, when a child cries or whines, how long? Does it help when you tell them the answer to that question? Three hours and 42 minutes according to Google Maps not helpful. It doesn't even help when that cry goes out to say, just 30 minutes, just 30 minutes. None of that helps because when you get to the point of crying out how long, you are not okay with any other answer than right now, it's over. We don't want information when we cry how long to God. It will be three more weeks until I answer that prayer. It will be six months until you understand what's going on. We are not interested really in any other timeline than right now. 
That's the cry of how long because we feel like we're so weary and we have nothing left and we're barely holding on. That first line in Psalm 13, that is the cry of a very weary soul. It feels like forever that God has forgotten him, that it will never end. David feels like he's going to be sitting at a red light forever. Look at the second half of verse 1. Moving on into verse 2, David starts crying out to God about all the sources of his weariness. It's a spiritual weariness. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? God's face, when his face is turned towards us, that's God's presence, his grace, his blessing, and his favor. He feels like at this point he's lost all sense of all of that. God's reality is far from him. It's a spiritual weariness. It's also a personal weariness. How long must I take counsel in my own soul? How long do I have to propose plan after plan for myself to go from a red light to a green light? None of it's working. Every day I have sorrow. I'm not sure how much longer I can bear it. It was a personal, mental, and emotional weariness. And it was a circumstantial weariness as well. He says, how long, verse 2, Will my enemy be exalted over me? Another translation says, how long will my enemy dominate me? It's like he's being dominated. Something about his situation made him feel like he was in a wrestling match and his foe had him pinned down to the mat. He said, how long? It was a circumstantial weariness, spiritual, personal, circumstantial. Now, I think at any point in our lives, maybe even those of, of you who are at a green light moment right now this morning, I think we all have at least one how long, one place in our life and in our soul where we are asking God, how long will it be like this? It can only take one of these that becomes very wearisome and intense where we feel like we've hit a red light. And often when we hit one of these, personal, spiritual, or circumstantial, the other two follow close behind. And the weariness becomes too much. We ask, how long will I struggle with this? This flaw, this sin, this anger, this lust, this envy... It's been a year, it's been five, it's been 10 years, it's been my entire life. How long? How long will it go on? Will I ever change? Will you ever change me, God? I'm so tired. Or maybe we ask, how long will I suffer with this sickness, with this ailment? How long will this relationship be so difficult? How long do I have to endure this job? How long will I feel overwhelmed with life's Demands. How long will I have to fight for my mental and emotional health? I'm so tired. How long will the world be full of sufferings and shootings and violence? How long? You know what Psalm 13 would say about all those questions that I just said? Do you know what David would say to me about all the things I just said? He would say, that's a good prayer. That's prayer. That was worship. But can I ask you to do something this morning? If something has come to mind, 
If there's a how long question on your heart, would you write it down? I want to come back to that later. Write it down. It's prayer. It's worship. I've already said this. You'll hear me say it again as we're in this series. God put this psalm here to show us when we are feeling this. It's not just okay to admit it. It's not just okay to say it and pray it. It's necessary for us to move out of lament. We must first cry, the cry of the weary soul. When we are weary, the first thing to do is to cry out to God. How long? But the psalm moves us forward from this. Look at verses 3 and 4. What's the next move? When we are weary, when we are feeling how long, we are to cry out to God and we are to make a case to God. We are to pray our case to God to act now. That's what David's doing in 3 and 4. One scholar I was reading on this said about verses 3 and 4, he said, David grabs the lever to pry God into action. Now, that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. It made me feel that way when I read it. A lever? A lever to pry a sovereign God? Is there such a thing? I've been wrestling with that all week. Verses 3 and 4 are only one example in the Bible of someone grabbing this lever. Jesus said, let me teach you how to pray, Luke 18. He says, pray like an impatient widow demanding justice, pleading her case before a judge. In Luke 11, Jesus said, pray like a friend who doesn't stop bothering his other friend in the middle of the night until he gets what he needs. Jacob said to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. The prophet Isaiah said, do not let God rest until he keeps his promise. Make a case. A lot of people if they get to verses 1 and 2 in prayer and make their cry out to God and things don't immediately change, immediately improve, they often give up and say, prayer isn't working. It didn't work for me. My faith isn't working. I'm still weary, and they give up altogether. But in times of weariness, Psalm 13 says, when we cry out, we don't stop there. There's something else we need to do to keep us from giving up. Make a case. Make a case to God. Verse 3, David prays, consider and answer, O Lord my God, light up my eyes. Light up my eyes, that's a Hebrew idiom. It's saying renew my vigor, renew my vitality. In 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan ate honeycomb when he was fighting a battle and it says his eyes lit up. He was strong again. He went from red light to green light. And so David is saying, end my weariness. And then he gives three reasons why. You can follow along with me in verses 3 and 4. He says, lest I sleep, the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. That's David's argument to God. Now, what makes a good argument? In order to make a good argument, you have to have persuasive reasons, right, to make your case. David, I would say, he gives just essentially one reason here. 
If you don't answer me, God, then my enemies will win. And my enemies are yours. For God, this is the most persuasive reason I believe we can give for him to answer our prayers. Now, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions. Some of you might uh, be out here like this. Do you hate to lose? How many of you hate to lose? You will slaughter a small child, a three-year-old in Candyland because you hate to lose so much. No one's, no one's admitting it. I know you're out there. You're competitive. When there's a game, when there's a competition, something happens, something comes over you because you hate to lose. God is a competitive God. He hates to lose. And He made us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist. Anything that competes against that Our joy, His glory, that is His enemy. And the whole Bible could be boiled down to this. The enemies will not win. God wins. There are over 80 references to enemies in the Psalms, and sometimes we struggle with trying to figure out how to pray these Psalms. These 80 references are scattered throughout, so that's more than half the Psalms include these unnamed and unknown enemies most of the time. We struggle to know how to pray these. What are my enemies? Is my enemy traffic? Are my enemies seasonal allergies? What are my enemies that I'm praying against? We need to know, and thankfully, there is uh, some help for us in this area. Theologians have described these enemies as the enemies of our soul. Usually it's broken down into three. I'm going to share four. I think there are at least four of the great enemies of our souls. First is the world. The Bible talks about the world. What is that? It's any system of thought or life constructed and run without reference to God. It's saying the whole, when it comes to the world, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's more out there than individual sin. There is systemic injustice, systemic evil. There are the isms of the world that influence us, run our lives, and shape our hearts and desires, consumerism, nationalism, racism, and many more. Whole systems for living are built without God. That is the world. And the world is an enemy of our good. There is the flesh. Within us, there is a desire and an impulse to rule our own lives, to be a sovereign self, to make God unnecessary, to be independent from Him. Flesh is everything in us untouched by God's grace. The flesh is an enemy of the soul, an enemy of our good. And then there is the devil. We may have a lot of questions about this, but the Bible says there are spiritual beings that actively work to undermine God's purpose in us in the world. And there's a kind of hierarchy with these beings. At the top is the devil. His main tactics are to poison the human soul with accusation and lies. The devil seeks to dehumanize through disorder, through upending God's order in the world, placing creation above creator. He is a being who wants to fill people and communities with shame and lies. He is an enemy to all that is good for us. The Bible says there is a last enemy, and that is the enemy here that David directly speaks about. That is death. Death is the last enemy of all that God intends and all that is good. 
Now, these enemies are all allies with the same purpose, to keep us from God's purpose and plan for us. And this is very important. If these enemies can't keep us from God, then they will try to rob us of all joy. They will try to rob us of the joy we were meant to have in relationship with God. Now, those, the world, the flesh, the devil, and death are some strong and serious enemies. If there's one thing that's crystal clear in the Bible story, none of them are any match for God. They will lose. This broken and fallen world where there is opposition to God and what His will is for us The Bible clearly says this is not the way it began and this is not the way it will end. That's what the whole Bible is all about, a good creation and an even better new creation. So biblical prayer includes protest and argument where we say, God, based on your word and based on your promise, all this weariness, whatever it is, this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it will be. How long will it be the way it is? This is what makes biblical prayer so different than any other kind of prayer. It's how the Bible tells us to pray in our weariness. We don't pray to retreat. Prayer is not retreat. This is the Eastern view of prayer and meditation. We escape from what is, what will always be. There is a cyclical view, a world of light and dark, a world of suffering and happiness, going on and on in an endless cycle of balance. So prayer and meditation is a retreat and an escape from this cycle. That's not what David is doing here. In the same way, prayer is not resignation. This is the main approach of other religions that hold to one all-powerful God. Prayer is just where we learn to accept the way things are. It's all fate. It's all God's will. But biblical prayer is not retreat. It's not resignation. It gives voice to the reasons why things are not the way they should be. Now, when you are forced to make an argument about something that you believe in, When you're called out to say, somebody says, well, prove that. Why do you believe that? And you think about it. You develop your strong reasons. What happens when you make that argument? You don't always convince your opponent, the person who disagrees with you, but almost all the time, you convince yourself. You are more convinced of the truth of whatever it is that you are arguing. That's one of the main purposes of making a case to God. It reminds us of the evidence. It reminds us of what we lose sight of in our weariness. This weariness will not win. God has and will answer all of our how long prayers. When we lose sight of that, in making a case to God, we remember it. 
So there is the cry of the weary soul. There is the case of the weary. And finally, there is joy for the weary. That's where this psalm ends. As David cries, as he makes a case, that's where the joy starts to break through. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, David says, but as for me. In, in, the, in the original language, in the Hebrew, this is called a strong adversative. It means this is an entire shift of mood. There is a transformation from verse 4 to verse 5. David says, I am now able to see above my weariness, to get outside of it, having cried out, having made my case. David says in verse 5, but now I am able to relocate my trust. I'm not just trusting in my spiritual experience. I'm not just trusting in my feelings and my emotions. I'm not just trusting in my circumstances changing. He says, my, my trust is in your steadfast love. Steadfast love, that is God's unfailing, his covenant, loyal love for his people. David says, my heart will rejoice in your salvation because you will rescue me from all my enemies. I'm singing again. I know God will not just give me what I need. He's going to go above and beyond because he's bountiful. He's always bountiful. How did this happen? If you are weary and at a red light this morning, you are saying, well, how did that happen? How did he go from red to green like that? So alive and so joyful. There is a great mystery between verses 4 and 5. I, was, I read probably 10 or 11 commentaries this week on this psalm. And this mystery is in almost all of the biblical laments. Laments all have this moment of abrupt transition from lament to praise, from sorrow to joy, from being shaken to being unshakable. And all the commentators are asking, what happened in between? What happened? No one knows. All the commentators really said, we, we don't have any answer for that. Somehow David was able to see beyond his weariness to glimpse God's steadfast love and salvation. And so I, he says, can trust in him. How do we know when we are weary and weighed down with so much weariness that God can be trusted, that darkness will give way to light, that suffering will give way to glory, that our weariness will somehow result in joy. How can we know? Well, I believe there is an answer. I believe we can know. We have something more than David ever had. He saw it. He glimpsed it in his own life and in the promises that he knew of in the Word of God. But Psalm 13 is not just David's prayer. Psalm 13 is meant to be read as the prayer of David's greater son, Jesus. Because Jesus prayed this prayer for us, we have a solid, robust reason for joy no matter how weary we get. Psalm 13 is the gospel in the form of of a prayer. 
Let me show you. Because Jesus, his eyes did close in the sleep of death. The face of his father was hidden from him on the cross. It was like he was forgotten. Sorrow overcame him as he prayed, not my will but yours. And on the cross, the enemies, the enemies of his glory and of our joy, death, sin, the world, and Satan said, we won. We've triumphed over him. They rejoiced because he was shaken. It was like the whole world was turned upside down. But greater glory came out of his suffering. Isn't that the story? A greater joy came out of this great sorrow. Life from death, he rose again from the dead. Defeating all our enemies, sin, Satan, the world and death are overcome. And so all who trust in Jesus can know with certainty that he will bring us to verses 5 and 6. He will take us from suffering to glory, from death to resurrection. It's not up to us to defeat our enemies and make our way and fight our way out of our own weariness. We're not left alone in that. Even when we struggle to pray, even when the weariness doesn't feel like it's changing when it persists, what doesn't change is that Jesus lived and prayed this psalm for us. Before we pray Psalm 13, we need to know it was prayed for us. Here's a picture that was helpful for me. For David, it was like this. All the clouds of weariness had just covered his entire life. They blocked all the light from his eyes. He says, I have no light in my eyes. Everything was dark. How long can I live under this gloom, is what he was saying. That was his cry. But the clouds lifted, right? He saw above the clouds, and he saw the sun. He saw the sky. He saw the brightness again. In this prayer, the clouds lifted for David. And even for us, when they don't immediately lift for a long time, how can we remember that when we're covered in the clouds of weariness, that the sky and the sun is still there? One of the reasons I love living in Southern California is because of what happens after the clouds roll in, after we get rain. And it's been happening a lot lately. I drive to my office, and usually when, it's, when it's, I'm crossing the, the 55 freeway, I look over to the right, and you see the mountains. And lately, they've been amazing, covered in snow. And I always have to look at them as long as I possibly can as I'm driving, going, what? I forgot those were there. Often, they're covered in clouds or haze or smog or whatever it might be. But when the clouds lift, they just go, they're so close. I forgot they were there. I couldn't see them in all their majesty and glory and beauty. But they were always there. They were always surrounding me. 
They were never shaken. When the clouds of weariness roll in, friends, we can trust. We can rejoice in our salvation. It hasn't changed. It hasn't moved. We cry out. We don't just keep going. We don't hold it in. We cry out. That's worship. We make our case remembering this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it will always be. And we choose to trust. The mountains are there even when we can't see them. We rejoice in our salvation that Jesus knows our weariness. He bore it. He will win. One day he will end all sorrow and all sighing. This is the gospel. Whatever you wrote down on that how long, the gospel tells us. Jesus knows. Jesus bore it. It will come to an end. As I close in prayer, I just want to encourage you. As I pray, remember, however thick the clouds of weariness are, the mountains are still there, friends. The gospel is true. We can rejoice in that. Let's pray. Jesus, you said, come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll give us rest. You said when we are yoked to you and connected to you, when we, we reach out and trust you, that the load is easy and light. Because everything we're carrying that makes us weary, you take it. And I pray for my friends this morning pray for my own soul, that you would lift the weariness, that you would drive back the clouds, that you would give us brightness of eyes to be able to see the things that cannot be shaken, that cannot move, that you love us so much, that you value us so much. that you are so passionate for our joy that you would take our enemies head on and overcome them for us. Help us hold on to that this morning. Fill us and renew us with joy, I pray. In your name, amen.